Good morning. I'm Pastor Andrew, and I hope you are enjoying the unseasonably warm weather that's out there. Uh, my family and I were spending time with Andres and Bianca, who are from Brazil, and they said, is it always like this in January? <laughs> we're like, no, <laughs> it is not. But enjoy it. It's been a good winter so far. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you chose to spend some of this nice weekend here at Stony Brook Fellowship, together as a spiritual family, and with our eyes on worshiping God, our eyes on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as we prepare for communion. And part of our act of worship together today will be learning from his word, and I'm looking forward to that. Now, on those few occasions where, where Karen wants me to go, I really enjoy going to the theater. So I usually don't seek it out to go watch a play or a musical or whatever it may be. And again, it's often my wife that asks me to go. But every time that I'm there, I really appreciate, I'm blown away by the talent and by the impact of the show. A number of years ago, she wanted me to go to Rainbow Stage in the city to watch Mary Poppins. And I was like, I don't really want to watch Mary Poppins. But I love my wife, and so I went. And then for the next month, I came home after that, and for the next month was singing Chim Chimini, Chim Chimini, Chim Chim Cheru. Uh, because musicals, it was a great show. But then I loved going the year after that where there was a musical on the life and music of Johnny Cash. And now that was something worth watching. Now our story this morning would make an excellent play. It would be an excellent theatrical performance, though probably not a musical. If anyone came up with a musical on Genesis 27, I'd be quite impressed. But during this story, we will find that there will be four characters, Isaac and his wife Rebecca and their twin sons Esau and Jacob. There's these four characters in this story that could be a play. It only needs two different sets on stage. One would be Isaac's tent. That's the main set where most things happen. And then just outside of Isaac's tent would be the second set. And then this play would be four acts long. And each one of these acts would have an interaction of one pair of the characters. You see, only two of them are interacting with one another at any given time. And despite that, all of what is said and done has a huge impact for all four of them. So four acts with one pair of these characters interacting with one another, and then we see that the stage is set for this story that happened in human history. Act one would open, and the lights would come up, and we would see Isaac sitting in his tent. And this would not be a young man anymore. Genesis 27 describes for us that Isaac is well advanced in years, and he is feeling his age. His eyes are dim. If he's not completely blind, he is one step away. And not only is he feeling his age, but, but we are led to believe that Isaac doesn't know how much more time he has on this earth. And he believes his death is drawing near. And one thing he wants to do before he dies is to pass on a blessing to his oldest son, Esau. Now, if you were watching this or reading this and in the ancient Near East, nothing would seem out of the ordinary so far. It would be ex extremely common for someone who is the patriarch of a family to pass on a blessing. We'd call it even an inheritance blessing to the firstborn. That was normal. That was not unusual. If an audience were watching this, they would say that that would be the way it should be. Except this was not the norm in the uh, story of Isaac and of Esau and Jacob and Rebekah. Because back in Genesis 25, God had prophesied to Rebekah, that two nations are in your womb, 
And two peoples from within you shall be divided, and the one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So with God in his role in this family and the promise that he had given to them, it was always the Lord's design that it would be Jacob, the younger of the twins, that would receive this blessing and not Esau. But Esau was Isaac's favorite. And at the end of his life, he wants to give the blessing to his oldest favorite son. And what he is doing is acting against the Lord's wishes. And he would have certainly been aware of the prophecy given to his wife, Rebecca, years ago. And so Isaac is taking matters into his own hands. And he meets with Esau and tells him, go, hunt, find some, some game, bring it back here and make for me my favorite meal. And then once I've eaten, I will give you a blessing. And so I'm sure at this, Esau would have been tremendously excited, saying, now is the time where I can, I can look forward to my inheritance and receive this blessing and take my place at the top of the family for the next generation. And so he grabs his gear and he goes out and he hunts. And then the lights dim, and that is the end of Act 1. And as the lights come back on, we see Act 2 take place just outside of Isaac's tent because Rebecca has been just outside there and she's been listening in. She has been eavesdropping. Kind of like Sam Ganji did outside Frodo's window during his fateful conversation with Gandalf. I won't drop a no eve, sir. Whether you are Sam or whether you are Rebecca in this instance, you are overhearing a conversation that has dramatic consequences. For Rebecca, due to this prophecy, she has long been under the understanding that it would be her favorite, Jacob, the younger son, that would receive this blessing from the Lord through Isaac. But now it looks like her husband wants to do things differently. And so having listened to this conversation, she rushes back to Jacob and she wants him to take Esau's place and receive this blessing. She wants to deceive Isaac into thinking that Jacob would be Esau so that her favorite could receive the inheritance. And so she instructs Jacob to go and grab two young goats so that she can prepare Isaac's favorite meal and he can go in disguise as Esau and bring him the food and receive the blessing. Sounds like a pretty good plan, right? Well, Jacob's a bit hesitant, not because he doesn't think that it's a good thing to do. He has some worries about if this plan will work. He says to his mom, well, Esau is hairy and I am smooth. Now, for those who were uh, here a few weeks ago at the birth story of these two men, uh, it says that Esau, Esau was born red, like a hairy cloak covered his body. And he was a, an exceedingly hairy person. And Jacob now is very different. Those two different boys grew up to be two different men. And so he's worried that even though his father can't see very well, his smooth skin will give him away and the gig will be up. And then if he does get caught, he's also worried that instead of receiving a blessing, Isaac will give him a curse. But Rebecca, she is, she is committed to this course of action. And so she wants to put those worries to rest. She says to her son, Jacob, if you get caught, let the curse come upon me. I will protect you. I will take any consequences of this upon myself. Now, whether she can actually deliver on this or not remains to be seen. But she says, don't worry about the possibility of being caught. I will take the curse. And secondly, she says, bring me the skin of those young goats that you're going to kill so that I can make this food. Bring me their skin, and I'll place that skin on the hands, on your hands, and on the, the back of your neck so that if Isaac feels you and touches you, 
that you will be like Esau. And remember, Esau was an exceedingly hairy man. If a skin of a goat could pass as his skin. That's not the main point, but I just like to keep bringing it up. So having put his worries to rest, Rebekah goes and prepares the food, gives it to Jacob, and sends him on his way to Isaac's tent. And then the lights will dim, and that wraps up Act 2. Act 3 begins as Jacob takes this food, dressed in Esau's clothes, covered with hairy skin, and he comes before his father Isaac and wants to receive this blessing. Isaac begins by asking Jacob directly, Who are you, my son? And this is where the story in the deception takes one step further, a significant step that I don't think you could take back. You see, up to this point, it's been almost like a game. Maybe we could trick Isaac. Maybe we could dupe him. Uh, Maybe we could just work around the edges, and this would be a little bit like a, a con game. But now Isaac has asked Jacob a direct question. Who are you, my son? And this is the way that Jacob chooses to respond in Genesis 27, verse 19. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. This is no longer a trick. It's no longer just a deception. This is a bold, outright lie from Jacob to his father, a lie to the one that God has chosen to to continue this promise originally made to Abraham. This has taken a significant step forward. But even given this response, Isaac is skeptical. And he asks how it was possible for Esau to have returned so quickly with this game and this meal now fully prepared to eat. And Jacob lies again, saying that the Lord blessed me. I had great favor and found a game to to shoot and to kill and to prepare right away. And so now, not only is Jacob lying to his father, he's invoking the Lord. This is borderline blasphemy, this next lie. And yet, Jacob continues down this track. Isaac is still doubtful because the voice that he hears sounds like Jacob. But then he asks him to come forward, and when he touches his hands and his neck, it feels like Esau. What's really interesting is that we know that Isaac had dim eyesight. He was blind. But every single other sense is at work here. He is tasting and eating the food. Was it prepared by Esau? He is hearing the voice. Does it sound like Esau? He is touching the hands and the neck. Does it feel like Esau? And then finally, not knowing which one of these senses would win out, right before the blessing, Isaac wants to smell Jacob, that final sense, to double check. And Jacob comes forward and um, Isaac smells, and he smells the Esau's clothes that Jacob is wearing. And the deception wins out. And Isaac finally blesses Jacob. This is the blessing he receives. Genesis 27, verses 29 and following. So Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is the smell of a field the Lord has blessed. Which I think is a compliment here, but might not be to many of us today. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you. And nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you. And blessed be everyone who blesses you. 
And this is the all-important blessing, this inheritance blessing. But it was more than just well wishes. As we read through Genesis, we know that Isaac was a prophet of the Lord. He was chosen of the Lord to carry and continue the promise of the chosen people. And so this was a prophetic blessing from God through Isaac to Jacob. And just like names, when when God chose to name someone, these blessings spoke truth to the reality and the future of this person. This would happen. This would be true. That is why this blessing is so important. It's not just, I hope you do well, son. This is God prophesying through Isaac to Jacob. Jacob and his descendants would receive the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth, which is to say that there would be strong agricultural blessing and prosperity, which for a nomadic people would have been critical. But even as the children of Israel settled in the promised land after the exodus, they needed to maintain crops and livestock that would give their nation a chance to flourish and be strong and resist their enemies, which is also part of the blessing. Other nations would serve Jacob, including his very own brothers, which begins with Esau. That's part of the contention. But it was never just Jacob and Esau. They were the oldest, they were the eldest, but there were other brothers in this family. But they too would be subservient to Jacob. He now received the primary inheritance. It would be through him that the family name and the family promise given by God would carry on. Everyone who curses Jacob would be cursed, and everyone who blesses him would be blessed. This is a beautiful echo of God's original promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. And a good indication to us reading this that it is the Lord that is saying through Abraham and now through Isaac and now through Jacob, I will continue to keep my promise and my covenant. This blessing was tremendous. And Jacob receives it and then he grabs his stuff and he leaves. And that is the end of the third act. But Act 4 happens right away. There wouldn't have even been time for the lights to dim and to come back on because as soon as Jacob leaves, blessing intact, Esau comes back. It didn't take him very long. He had tremendous luck out in the field to kill this game and to prepare it. And so he returns with his father's favorite meal, eager and expectant of receiving a blessing. And when he enters the tent of Isaac, his father asks that same question, Who are you? And he truthfully gives the same response. I am Esau, your firstborn son. And in that moment, all of Isaac's skepticism and doubt, I mean, we could see in his interaction with Jacob, he was not convinced that that he was really Esau. He needed that convincing. And in the back of the mind, maybe he still had some doubt. But when Esau returns, and it's undoubtedly him, everything clicks into place. Isaac knows that his son has lied to him, that his son has deceived him, that he's given his blessing to the son that he did not intend to. But more than that, Isaac also recognizes that God still had his way. Well, he thought he'd be able to control the situation, and despite the prophecy made earlier, he could still bless Esau. But he knows now that God has moved, and what God says goes, still goes. And the culmination of knowing that God is in control and that his son has deceived him causes Isaac to tremble violently. He is literally in shock at this moment. Esau is also distraught. He is weeping. He is sobbing. And he asks for a blessing also. He wants something from his father. And Isaac says, I can give you a blessing, but it is not the blessing you are looking for. And as we read it, it really amounts to an anti-blessing. 
This is what it says in verse 39. Then Isaac, Esau's father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. He will not. And by he, I'm I'm not meaning Jacob and Esau, the people. I'm I'm meaning their descendants and the nations that would come from them. Uh, Edomites, they would not have agricultural success. And later on, when Israel was able to settle in in the most fertile part of of Canaan, the Edomites were, were stuck in the hill country, in the wilderness, where they had to fight for everything that they needed. They would live by the sword. And ultimately, he must serve his brother. As we read on in the story of the Old Testament, during the days of King David, God blessed King David and they overcame many of their enemies, including the Edomites who were Esau's descendants. They became almost a vassal state of Israel. And they continued to be subservient to Israel from that time of David all the way until the reign of Judah's King Jehoram in 2 Kings chapter 8. And it was at that time that they gained their freedom. And this last part of the blessing that Jacob gave to Esau came true. And so Esau is distraught and he is weeping and his father is shaking and weeping and the lights go down and that's the end of quite a heartwarming family story, right? That's the end. There's no more acts in this play, but there is an epilogue. The epilogue is the result of everyone's sin. Esau was angry and he hated his brother Jacob for deceiving him, stealing his blessing, and so he pledged to kill him. Because of that, Jacob was forced to flee from his, for his life down to his uncle Laban. The family then was broken. They were ripped in two. And the very promise that Isaac and Rebekah were trying to look after in their own ways was threatened. It was a result of sin. And make no mistake, all the players had fault. Isaac was trying to take matters into his own hands and ignore the prophecy that it would be Jacob to receive this blessing, and he wanted to bless his favorite son instead. Rebekah didn't go to him and talk about the Lord and being subservient to the Lord. She was conniving and worked out a deception to make sure that her favorite Jacob would receive the blessing. Jacob was a part of this deception and boldly lied to his father's face on multiple occasions to get something for himself that he desired. And Esau allowed his anger to rule causing his younger brother to flee and forcing the family to be broken. Such an imperfect way for such a perfect promise of God to move forward. God had said, through you, family, I will bless all the nations of the earth. What an imperfect way for such a perfect promise to continue. But the truth is, through all of Isaac's story, that God keeps his promises despite our shortcomings. Now, if that point sounds familiar, this is where we ended up or landed our sermon last week. And we've gone through this story in Genesis 27 in a few different ways. And we've talked a lot about in Isaac and his entire story that there's a danger in favoritism. We learned that lesson, that there is, there is a danger in deceiving those around us, that there is a, a danger in the significance of generational sin. And the one lesson that kind of pushes its way through all of those things is that God can keep his promises despite all of these shortcomings. God's promise through Abraham, through Isaac, and through Jacob persevered through it all. Because when God makes a promise, he will not be deterred by our schemes, 
by our, uh, our anxieties, by our desire for control, by our failing, by our sin. God's promises are not contingent on those things. He will not be derailed so easily. And this truth is not limited to the patriarchs of the Old Testament. It applies to us today. God can uniquely keep his promises because of his unique character. And there are three characteristics of God that I want to highlight that I believe are essential in why we trust that he can continue to keep his promises despite our shortcomings. The first characteristic of God that makes it possible is that the Lord is long-suffering. Really, pastor? Long-suffering? You couldn't just say patient? Is the rest of this sermon going to be in King James language? O Lord, thou art long-suffering in thine perfect being. Henceforth this day cometh our own limited understanding of thine glory, and doth hasten our humble estate. Don't worry. I'm not going to do that for the rest of the time. Why would I choose long-suffering over patient? Well, I think it, it says something more significant, something deeper, something more, so much more emotional. I mean, to be patient to me seems like what happens when you choose that long lineup in the grocery store again? And the person in front of you is trying to split a cart of groceries, three different bills, and that's the cashier's second shift overall. That's, that's being patient. Being long-suffering is going to the emergency room. <laughs> and there's a difference to me, right? One seems to ask so much more than the other. And I choose this word because it paints a beautiful picture. A humanity can create long-suffering. It talks about the experience of God and also his attitude towards us. And as we look at the history of God's people, and it wasn't just this family, it was their, their descendants, the nation, and time and time again, they would fall short and they would sin. They would leave God and they would follow false gods. They would break the covenant and the law that they had agreed to keep. And then when things got tough, they would come back to God asking his forgiveness over and over and over again. And the Lord is and was and continues to be long-suffering with his people. And I feel like parenting, parenting young kids in particular, teaches us a lot about the nature of what it means for the Lord to be long-suffering. I have a few memes that you may or may not find helpful about this. So, parents, this is serious. Are you listening to me? Kid, Dinosaur noise. Long suffering. Or when you ask them to clean up their Lego, don't leave it on the floor. We don't want to step on it. Right? Long suffering. Or what about those, all those questions that come from kids? Once I became a parent, I finally understood the scene where Yoda gets so tired of answering Luke's question, he just dies. <laughs> Which is one of my favorite memes ever. Long suffering. And we learn about it. But we are the children. And we have a heavenly father who is patient, who is slow to anger, who is long-suffering towards us. Uh, David understands this and writes uh, the truth in Psalm 103, verse 8. He declares that the Lord is merciful and gracious and is slow to anger, long-suffering, and abounding in steadfast love. Slow to anger. If God were to be quick to anger, we would rightfully lose out on so many of his promises. We would, we, of our own fault, if it was contingent, if he decided just to be just and not to be merciful, if he decided to be quick to anger as would be his right, instead of suffering 
our ineptitude, so many of these things would not be true. For Israel, they constantly tested the patience of God, who proved slow to anger. And even when God chose to rightfully punish them for their wrongdoing, he never pulled back on his promises. They endured. Which brings me to that second characteristic of God that's so important. God's not only long-suffering, but he is loyal. He is loyal. That's, again, something in that same Psalm 103, verse 8. It says he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and, where is it? Abounding in steadfast love. Steadfast love. One of my professors in seminary told me that there was probably no other more important word in the Hebrew Scriptures than hesed. And hesed is the word that describes God's steadfast love. Or some translations will say loving kindness. Or we can define this morning as loyal love. It's not just the love of God, but it's this love of God that never ceases, that never is stopped, that's never drawn back, that's never conditional on how his people are acting. It is a loyal love. God is loyal even when we don't deserve that loyalty. And this is a type of love. And loyalty is a commodity that's growing more and more rare these days. It's hard to find people who are loyal to their jobs, find people who are loyal to their families or their churches or their sports teams. I I worked with a gentleman who grew up in Saskatchewan, lifelong Riders fan, and when he moved to Manitoba, he said, oh, I will just choose to cheer for the Bombers. Can you imagine that? Like, (gasps) the scandal. Loyalty is in short order. But why is it hard to remain loyal? Because it is so much easier to leave and go somewhere where you get more. We don't need to be loyal to our job because this job will give me a raise or a promotion. I will leave and receive more. I don't need to be loyal to my family because now I believe this is more exciting for me. I will receive more. I don't need to be loyal to my church because now they're, they're just, I don't like the preaching as much anymore. I like the preacher over here. And so I will receive more. I don't need to remain true to the riders because I live in Manitoba and they make fun of the riders all the time. We are disloyal and we leave when we receive more. And in fact, we start to almost define loyalty in those terms. Like when I talk to my cell phone provider, and the first thing I want to say is, like, can I speak to your loyalty department? I love talking to the loyalty department because then I tell them, I am not loyal to you. I want you to give me the best deal you possibly can. That's what will keep me here. I don't have any loyalty to you. I want the best deal that I can possibly get. That loyalty department could be nothing more different. But God's loyal love is the opposite, and it does the opposite. You see, God willingly pays to remain loyal to us. God pays the cost. He pays the price. He is long-suffering. And so instead of, of him rightfully going somewhere else that will pay him more, he continues to give and to give and to give to stay true to his people and his promises. That is loyalty. And that type of loyalty is unique to the Lord. As I was doing some work for the, the podcast I was a part of this last year, I was interviewing uh, Dr. Patrick Franklin, one of my favorite professors, And we went on a little tangent in our interview and we talked about this divine exchange where Jesus gives up so much to us and takes on so much of us and all of our sin and shame in return. And we're talking about this and I I just, I was like, what a a raw deal for Jesus. 
what does he have to gain through all of that? No, he, he gives and we gain. He stays loyal and we are able to reap the benefits. God is long-suffering. He is loyal. And lastly, God is eternal. And I think this is an important thing to note. It's why God can keep his promises. He, he can keep them because he doesn't have to react to situations the same way that we do. He was not surprised when Isaac tried to give the blessing to, to Esau. When he made that prophecy through uh, to Rebekah all those years before, he knew full well what would happen in the future. He keeps his promises in the past, the present, and the future. And this is one other characteristic that David talks about in Psalm 103, skipping down to the verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love has said, the loyal love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. God is eternal. His loyalty is eternal. His promises are eternal. So the Lord prophesied to Rebekah about Jacob in the past. He was able to navigate the deception in our story in the present, and he continued to stay true to Jacob's descendants in the future. God goes behind us, beside us, and before us to make sure his promises always come true, even when we fall short. And this is proven through a line of blessings that show the promise continues perfectly, completely, and for all eternity through Jesus Christ. Follow with me this train of thought. We have in Genesis 27, verse 29, this part of the blessing that Isaac gave to Jacob. He says, Let people serve you and let nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Now keep that in mind. And then let's fast forward to Genesis 49. And now it is Jacob himself who is an old man at the end of his life. And he has his 12 sons around him that he's giving blessings to. His name is Israel. These sons will be the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is the blessing that he gives to his son Judah in Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. And so now, so much of, of this blessing that Jacob received is now echoed in when he tells Judah, saying, you will be the one that people will serve, and through you will all these nations bow down. Well, does anyone want to wager a guess on what tribe Jesus was born into? Anyone? Throw it out there. Judah. So Jesus now comes of the line of Judah, and we see this confirmed in Philippians 2, verses 9 and 10. Talking about Jesus, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that blessing that was given to Jacob, that was given to Judah, that was fulfilled in the life and the person of Jesus Christ is now eternally fulfilled in him because he is the Son of God, because he died for our sins, because he rose again to conquer death so that he did everything necessary to make sure God's promises to his people are true. And so it doesn't matter if we fall short. That does not undo the promise because Jesus has paid it all. He has done enough. And one day, all the nations of earth and under the earth, every last person will bow the knee and say that Jesus is Lord. And in that instance and in that moment, we will know that all these promises are true. As we conclude, you might be thinking, well, what promises are you talking about? You mentioned a lot, this promise to Abraham. You mentioned it a lot. Okay, I get that, but that's not our promise here today. That was a promise fulfilled in Jesus. What are these promises that God, in his loyal, long-suffering, eternal love, makes eternally true for you and me? Well, you read through the Bible, and there are some beautiful promises. In Christ alone, you can have forgiveness for sinners. Every last one. You can have peace that passes all understanding for the anxious. You can have fulfillment for the spiritually hungry. You have rest for the weary, strength for the weak, freedom for the addicted, comfort for those in grief, hope for the hopeless, and everlasting life for those who will one day shed this body. Just to name a few, but every last one of those promises is found and promised in Scripture. And every last one of those promises is guaranteed through the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Which promise speaks loudest to you today? Which of those do you need to cling to? Which of those are you extremely grateful that doesn't depend on you, but is instead yours, thanks to the long-suffering, loyal, eternal love of God displayed in Jesus Christ? Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, as we have journeyed through Isaac's story, I thank you so much that you are the main character. And we see how Isaac and Rebekah and, and Jacob and Esau struggled with their failings and their shortcomings and their humanity, and we can see so many, much of ourselves in that. But God, you go above that, beyond that, and persevere through it. And Father, I don't know what, what we are all facing in this room. I don't know what life is, is throwing our way. I am not sure what specific promise from your word we need to cling to, but God, I pray that we would be a group of people that would latch on to your love, your loyalty, your patience, your eternal truth, God, and that whatever promise that we look to, we would know is true in you and true through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.